Welcome to The Mindful Apprentice, brought to you by Swindon and Wiltshire Institute of Technology. In this podcast series, we want to share stories and information to help everyone make the apprenticeship a success, whether you're an employer or the apprentice. We've interviewed a wide range of apprentices, employers, specialists, charities and clinicians to make this series. Wherever you're listening, we hope you'll find it helpful. Hello, I'm Dominic Arkwright. In this programme and the next one, we're talking about neurodiversity. That could be autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, dyslexia, or a number of other conditions. Our guide here is Sarah Hendricks. She's written six books about this and is herself autistic and dyslexic. So a lot of her knowledge and information comes from a personal as well as a professional viewpoint. I suppose I was always a little bit of an odd individual throughout my life. Um, but being being female and being born in the late 1960s, there, there were very few diagnoses of dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, autism um, for anyone, particularly for people who did not have an accompanying intellectual disability, uh, i.e. The, a learning disability or a low IQ, and also for, for women. So I first received a diagnosis of dyslexia when I worked in a college in my mid-30s and then later received an autism diagnosis in my early 40s. At that point, I'd already written five books on the subject of autism and neurodiversity. My partner's autistic, my two children are autistic. I'd collected lots of notes as to why I thought I was autistic, but I also had a load of notes which said why I didn't think I could possibly be autistic. And I think working in the field as well was, it was a sort of a feeling of my own prejudice and seeing the prejudice that often people with disabilities experience. I needed to earn a living and I wondered whether if I started to disclose to people that I was autistic, they, they actually may not want to employ me. So Sarah wasn't diagnosed with autism until she was in her 40s and she'd already written several books about the subject before she was diagnosed. So how helpful actually is it to have a diagnosis? I think it's extremely helpful if it's something that you want and that you can see a value in yourself. It may be the case that other people around you consider the diagnosis valuable and it may be valuable for them in terms of how they understand you or support you. But for the individual themselves, it's it's very much got to be driven by your own willingness and desire to understand why you are perceived as different, why you perceive yourself as different. And certainly for a lot of people, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, coming from a feeling that no matter how hard I try, I don't fit in. I just can't get this right. People bully me. People tease me. I don't get it. Um, the diagnosis can often really lift some of that, even without any further support or treatment. Suddenly, this awareness that it's not just me, I'm not alone, and it's not my fault that these things happen to me. But for some people, that just changes their life in, entirely. Um, and it's it's extraordinary to, to see that weight of self-blame and self-liberation just lifted. It allows you to be kinder to yourself. The vast majority of my story has been one of no diagnosis 
um, lots of mental health issues and probably, I think the last count is about 45 different jobs in, in a mass uh, array of, of areas, many of which ended because I walked out, because I couldn't cope. Perhaps we'll talk about some of those reasons which are very relevant to, to our apprentices. And we will. But first, a bit more about Sarah. So she's written several books, we've heard. She's also been a stand-up comic. I've always been a, a writer. I've always written poetry as a child, written little stories. Always wanted to be an actor. Um, but having children very young doesn't really facilitate the, the kind of hours required to dedicate yourself to those sorts of things. So, so comedy was a way that I could write my own material. I didn't have to rely on anyone else. Um, I didn't have to do an audition. I could just go and get myself a gig at an open spot. I didn't, I didn't need anyone else to do it. There was you know, no process, nothing. I could just write stuff and get on the stage um, and, and deliver it. There are a huge amount of neurodiverse people in comedy, a huge amount of autistic people, a huge amount of ADHD people in, in stand-up comedy. And there's something about viewing the world in a slightly unusual way. So you're observing things that perhaps other people don't notice. There's systems, there's a formula, there, there's all of that kind of stuff. And for me, a joy in performing and getting up on a stage with a script, with a set time frame. So it's a way to connect with people in a, in a much more measured fashion, which is a lot more comfortable for autistic people. So let's think now about neurodiversity in the workplace. Remember, Sarah said she'd had and left around 45 jobs. How come? So a really big thing for me, which again is, I know is, it's common for a lot of autistic people, is a, is a sense of principle. So it, being in a workplace where you either don't get credit for the work that you've done or your work is taken from you and used by someone else without any acknowledgement or credit. And whereas I guess some people might suck that up and think to themselves, well, okay, it's not ideal, but the bigger picture here is that I've got bills to pay. So I'm just going to stick this out for a while until I can find something better. It was my experience, and I, and I know this is not particularly unique, is that that would just be intolerable, that I wouldn't think of another solution or any way to mitigate this situation. I couldn't communicate well enough to make the situation better without being fearful of being aggressive or, you know, getting it wrong or something in a social or hierarchical manner. So it would very much feel that it was a black and white uh, decision and I had to go. So this would leave me unemployed, often unpaid for the work that I'd done with one or two small children to, to pay for. But it was it was just intolerable for me to continue, and and so I would just I would just walk. So that's Sarah's own experience, or rather a small part of it. But most neurodivergent people, she says, will roll with the punches and play the game as they're expected to by people who are what's known as neurotypical. And that's what we call masking, and that means sort of pretending to be someone else because your real self you you perceive is not welcomed or approved of. Um, and the evidence for masking, particularly in females, is that it's just highly, highly detrimental to, to mental and physical health. Very, very bad. Suicide, uh, ideation, that, that kind of stuff, because you're, you're trying to fit in and bending your natural self constantly, every minute of every day that you're with people. 
Uh, and that takes an enormous toll on you. Social interactions, um, all of them. This one, um, all of my work is, is highly stressful, full of adrenaline and causes an enormous crash afterwards. So I, I nap during the day. I can't work full time. I can only work a day or two a week. And even that, I have terrible headaches. Uh, I'm exhausted. I've become very low in, of mood. So no, I, I I think whatever whatever it looks like on the face of it is is all just a, a kind of auto, automatic performance, if you like, for me. I wouldn't even know how to stop masking. But more generally, what does Sarah think are the main challenges neurodivergent apprentices may face in the workplace? One of the big challenges will be that they've chosen the wrong apprenticeship. What I found in my book on employment, uh, I chose to focus on people who were successful and neurodiverse rather than people who, who struggled. And what often seems to be the case is that the individual is very good and very interested in the task at hand. That might be plumbing, it might be woodwork, it might be admin, it might be computer science, it might be gardening. They love it. They're really interested in it. They really, really want to do it. But what they don't necessarily consider is the wider context of that role. So, for example, where will I be doing that role? Will I be in a huge open plan office? Will I be in a small office? Will I be outdoors? How many people will be involved? How big is the company? What is the management structure like? Will my workload change constantly or will it stay the same? Will I be expected to chat to people at my desk every day or, or, or is it quite a silent working environment? And I think this is a huge mistake because what seems to be the case for non-neurodiverse individuals is, is that they have a level of, for the most part, a level of tolerance of all of those things that I've mentioned so that they can give it, you know, give or take a little bit manage in most of those situations. They're okay with a bit of change. They're okay with a bit of banter. But what seems to be the case for our neurodiverse individuals is that some or one of those individual aspects may be utterly intolerable to the point that the person can't remain in the room because they have a blinding migraine or something. Or it makes them much, much less productive because they're unable to filter out some of those factors, such as noise or chatter or being interrupted or, or whatever whatever that might be. So, so the first challenge, I think, is that you're in the wrong place and that you might see everybody else around you coping perfectly well in this environment, but for some reason you just can't. And without that awareness of yourself and, and your own profile of neurodiversity, there's a fair chance that you end up feeling that it's you that's at fault here, so that you're kind of failing in some way. So for autistic people, for example, communication, how do people talk to me? Are they clear in the way they talk? Are they vain? Do they expect me to pick up subtleties without being very specific and precise in their instructions? Do they want me to do chat? Do they want me to ask them questions about what they did at the weekend? How quickly does the environment change? Will I be given a task and then someone else to take it away from me very quickly and try and get me to do something else? Sensory environment for autistic people is often very important. The lighting, the background noise, the smell in a 
you know, chemicals, food, having to wear a uniform of a particular fabric, many, many kind of things around that kind of stuff. Taking instructions, being perceived as as blunt, as a bit direct in communication, perhaps correcting people who are on a different social level in a hierarchical fashion, which may be perceived as being being rude and not recognising that kind of thing. Office politics, it's just not knowing when you're being teased, bullied, taken advantage of, so you can be quite naive in picking up that kind of stuff, not understanding the jokes, the list goes on. All of those things would fit within the diagnostic criteria for autism. I would suggest that it's absolutely vital that you take this on yourself. Otherwise, you could just make yourself, and people do, make themselves very ill, physically and mentally, trying to fit a, a square peg into a round hole because they don't want to stand out. They don't want to ask for help. They don't want to disclose their diagnosis. And that's been researched and seen to be extremely harmful uh, in the short term and the, and the long term. According to Sarah, people with ADHD may also find a new workplace challenging, but in different ways. So in terms of ADHD, the kind of challenges that you might have are being bored very quickly around repetitive tasks, being seen as a bit too loud, a bit too much is often how some ADHD people are are considered. Being perceived as, as a bit rude, maybe standing a bit too close to people, quite fast paced, speaking very quickly, you know, coming across as quite an overpowering sort of a character. Distractions, struggling to follow instructions if there's too many of them at once. So again, appearing not to care about the work, not being able to finish your tasks. So again, this sort of fits into the idea of choosing the right type of apprenticeship. So typically people with ADHD go into environments and do well where there may be energy required, physical energy, gardening, building, bricklaying, constantly moving around, being able to do things at speed rather than with precision because they're not always super detailed people. They're often very charismatic. They make good sales people. They enjoy the bars of that. And a dynamic changing environment would actually suit a person with ADHD um, in a way that it might not suit a person with autism. For people with dyspraxia, there may be some of the social difficulties of autism, but maybe also difficulties with fine and gross motor skills. So this might be someone that, that knocks things over, that isn't particularly dexterous, may struggle with handwriting if that's important, taking instructions, taking notes, even things like getting dressed, brushing your hair, having a shave. For some dyspraxic people, that's difficult. So if your personal appearance is very important in the role that you've undertaken, that may be problematic for that person to have to get dressed, do up their buttons. Uh, you know, and manipulating small pieces of machinery or equipment, some people might struggle with. And obviously the problem with that is that if you make errors, if you spill things, then not only do you get into trouble, you also feel badly about yourself, which is, which is not necessarily a kind of helpful way to be thinking about things. Sarah Hendricks exploring some of the difficulties that neurodiversity can bring to the workplace. Next time, we'll hear a bit more about the challenges, but also look at what your employers could 
and should be doing to make things easier. Until then, I'm Dominic Arkwright. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Mindful Apprentice. We hope you found something in it which was helpful to you or perhaps a colleague or friend, whether you're a new starter or a seasoned professional. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in the podcast or want to find out more about organisations which can provide help and support, go to sawiot.ac.uk forward slash The Mindful Apprentice. <laughs>